Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. So let's go ahead and get into the passage. And to get into the passage this morning, um, I want to tell you a story about me. Um, so from my college years, uh, my first three years uh, were... Uh, I was pre-med at Northwestern. Um, I was a biology and religious studies double major, and like I said, I was pre-med. And for people that know me, this is generally shocking to them. Um, But I I can assure you, I could not have been a doctor, right? Uh, They're like, wow, you could have been a doctor? And the answer is no, I could not have been. Like I said, my first three years of college were pre-med, right? But during this time, one of my favorite classes was organic chemistry, or orgo. Um, I actually liked it so much that I took it twice. Um, Yeah, once again, some of you get that on the way home. Anyways, uh, orgo was one of the hardest classes at Northwestern. Some of my friends even went to Harvard over the summer to take it because it was too hard at Northwestern. Uh, So my second time taking orgo, we take our second midterm, right? And before the professor hands back the tests, he tells us that the average, he's like prepping us. He's like, hey... These are okay, it's not the end of the world, but the average was an 8%. Yeah, eight, that's one, one number, right? Out of 100%, if you, apply a, if you multiply eight by seven, you are still failing, right? So we're all on pins and needles, waiting to get our test back. He wanted to prep us, right? So he starts to hand the, the test back, um, and I open my test, and I got a 91%. Yeah, luckiest in my life, 91%. Honestly, taking the class twice helped. Um, so I'm looking at my test, kids are crying, kids are cheering, somewhere in the background, We Are the Champions is playing. I think it was in my head, but I can't be sure. Um, and, uh, lost my spot, sorry. And, and then the professor says this. So obviously, this test was rough for most of us, right? So I'm just gonna give everyone a B plus and move on. Yeah, thank you. Thank God there's a response. Yeah, I was so mad. How could you do that when I worked so hard to get that 91%, right? I took the class twice. Others can too. And so I, not only is it like um, he's, he's giving everyone the same grade, I'm getting a lower grade than what I had earned, right? So honestly, if you were in my position, who, who would be angry? Okay, those of you, yeah, I understand if you did not raise your hand, you have ascended to be beyond grades, whatever. Um, but... But most of us maybe would be angry in that position, right? But what if you were the one who got an 8% or a 4% or a 0%? Would you be mad in that situation? No, right? I think when we think about it, your response to the professor depends on your position, right? Did you already fail or would you have passed without the curve, right? Now, I need to admit something. Uh, Most of this story is true, right? Um, I did take Orgo twice. Uh, I did participate in a midterm where the average was 8%, but I did not get 91%. I actually got a 12%, um, which was above average. There was a curve, so not everyone got a B plus. So I, I actually got a B plus, which is hilarious. It's like 12% was a B plus, but uh, there was a normal curve. That was pretty exciting. Um, I embellished the story a bit because I wanted to highlight something. Grace is scandalous and incredibly countercultural in America, right? Even as Christians, when we encounter true grace from person to person, we can sometimes be angry that they didn't get what they deserved, right? In both directions. Why did they get that? Why were they treated like that? Others deserve more, I deserved more, right? 
Now, of course, we have some strong positive responses when we see grace as well. If you're on Twitter as much as I am, um, you probably saw the case where the, the judge was like, the woman had to pay a parking ticket, and he's like, hey, don't worry about the parking ticket. Here's some money to get some food. Okay, none of you are on Twitter. Um, <laughs> that's fine. Um, we do have some strong positive responses, but I think we have cheapened the idea of grace a bit because of the frequency with which we mention it, but don't consider its depth. So this morning, as we look at Ephesians 2, this is what I've tagged our text. The scandalous grace of God and its countercultural impact. You guys with me? All right, let me pray, and then we'll go ahead and jump in. Uh, Lord, I just thank you uh, for this morning. I thank you for your grace, uh, your mercy, Lord, to even be able to be up here uh, and get to talk about you, Lord. What a privilege. Uh, and so this morning, I pray that the words that remembered are yours, not mine, Lord. That is about your glory and not mine. And help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Here's some name I pray. Amen. So we're already reoriented a bit, but we are in a series on the book of Ephesians. And in uh, opening the, the book three weeks ago, Melissa laid out a pretty clear structure of the book of Ephesians, right? So I did that a few weeks ago at Uptown, and I used this language. I have a little slide for you. In the first three chapters, we have the indicative chapters. Everybody say indicative. That was most of you. Uh, Paul is laying out what is true of us as a result of Jesus, right? Melissa called these chapters a fire hose of identity beauty, are the words she used. And then following are chapters four through six are the imperative chapters. Everybody say imperatives. Imperative. How do we live as a result of these truths, right? So we're in chapter two this morning, one through 10, which is of course in our indicative section. And man, it is it rich in what it says about us as a result of who Jesus is. But if I'm being completely honest with you, uh, as I was writing this sermon, I, I was having a really, really difficult time. Uh, I mentioned this, but it, it was predominantly because of familiarity. I worked in college ministry for five years at Northwestern, and almost every day during those five years, I would share the gospel using a tract, right? Now, we don't need to get into tracts, but the climax of the gospel presentation was this passage, Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 10. And that's how we predominantly shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus, right? So it was, it was so familiar, I was unsure of what to say this morning. I don't know if you guys know this, but research shows that 52% of accidents, car accidents, happen within five miles of your home, and 69% happen within 10 miles. Why is that? Now, I think that predominantly it's because of the frequency with which we're in that area, right? That's part of it. But I think another main reason is that we get comfortable with what's familiar, and we stop paying attention, right? We get comfortable with what's familiar, and we stop paying attention. I realized as I was writing these words for this morning that my familiarity with the passage meant I stopped paying attention. I thought I was a grace graduate, right? I thought I had a master's in mercy, my bachelor's in benevolence. So if that is you this morning, if you have graduated from the elementary truths of the gospel, or if you think you have, I ask that you open your heart to what God might have for us this morning. Okay, let's jump into the passage. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, much like the whole book of Ephesians, has a really, really easy structure, right? Really clear. Verses 1 through 3 talk about what was true of us before we knew Jesus, right? Verse 4 is the biggest but in the Bible, which transitions us to 5 through 9, which is what is true of us as a result of Jesus. Uh, and then verse 10 tells us what we have been saved for, okay? So we're going to go through all of these. Verses 1 through 3. What was true of us before we knew Jesus? I'm going to pull the words straight from the text, and then we're going to talk about a few of them. 
Okay, first one, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. For those who are dead, how do they change their position? They don't, right? This is the gravity of spiritual death. We are dead, unable to do anything about the penalty of our sin, right? Next one, followed the ways of this world. This is actually been my favorite one recently. It's weird to say like my favorites are like these terrible things, but like to, fo- to, to really rest on, uh, to think about what this means. This has been my favorite one. See, there's this, this idea surrounding sin that is incredibly important to understand, but I think it's often not talked about in our hyper-individualistic culture. Sin is far more than just individual acts, right? Yes, our individual acts of rebellion against God are sin, but I think the idea of sin in the Bible is far deeper than that. I like to think of it as a virus that has infested not only us, but our systems and structures, right? As a result of this infection, the ways of the world are inherently mutually exclusive to the ways of God. Let me say that. As a result of this infection, the ways of this world, the language straight from the text, are inherently mutually exclusive, right? The Venn diagram does not overlap with the ways of God. If godly living, I like to think of it like this. If godly living or holiness was an island that we were trying to reach, right? And we are on a boat in the water and desire to get to him. The current of the culture, the ways of this world are too strong for us to overpower on our own, despite our best efforts. So we will always follow the current of those, um, of our culture, right? A great example of this is white supremacy in our culture, Our nation was built on the idea of white supremacy, and it became such a part of our systems and structures that unless we are actively working to be aware of it and combat it, we can often be upholding it without realizing it, right? Another example of the ways in which this can work is relevant to the rest of the passage. Consider this. What makes someone successful in the eyes of our culture? What do people who are striving for success do? They have that, like, grind set, right? Um, That's grind mindset for those of you. Okay. we're not on Twitter, I guess. Uh, do as much as you can to climb the ladder. I once again saw a tweet uh, this week that said, work-life balance in your 20s is an easy way to guarantee a mediocre career. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that working hard in your job is inherently sinful, right? And if you wrote that and you're in this room, I'm sorry. But what is sinful is viewing everyone's worth through this mindset, including your own worth, Right? I mentioned I worked in college ministry at Northwestern. It's a highly competitive school. Um, and I can't tell you how many guys had to remind that their worth was not in them failing organic chemistry, right? They were not what they did. You are not worth what you do, right? You are not worth what you provide to others, even when it's a charitable way of living. You're not worth how good your ministry is. That is not where your worth is derived from, right? This is the way of the world. Your worth is in being beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And it's why we can't allow ourselves to be affected by the people who, when someone is murdered by the state, will share the criminal record of that person as if they deserve to be murdered by cops, right? Or, Or to discredit them. We do not advocate for life abundant just for the squeaky clean right? We advocate for it for everyone as they are beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God. We do not follow the ways of this world. Next one, we, follow, we followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You probably know this, but this is a Jewish phrase for the devil, right? A reminder that our battle is not flesh and blood. We were disobedient 
That one's pretty straightforward. We gratified the cravings of our flesh and followed its desires and thoughts. Similar to the ways of the world, apart from Christ and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, our motivations, our desires were not in line with God. And we, by nature, deserved wrath. I think this one is important in many contexts, but it's not one I'm going to dwell on from here this morning. Um, I don't think I'm out of pocket in saying most people I know struggle a lot more with self-condemnation than self-righteousness, right? And so uh, this is one to maybe wrestle with in a smaller community, but not one I'm going to focus on this morning. Okay, so these are what is true of us before Christ. Let's look at what comes next. Uh, Some versions say this, but God, right? Uh, but our version says, actually, I don't have it up there. Uh, yeah, I don't, oh, it is there. But because, thank you. But because of his great love, right? God saw what was true of us, how we were dead with no answers in our deadness, and God showed up. And based on verse four here, why does he show up? Because of his great love for us and because he's rich in mercy, right? Again, and this is not the last time I'm gonna say this this morning, but God didn't save us because we were mostly there, Right? You think about my, uh, my example with organic chemistry. I think a lot of us function as if we're at the 91%. It's like, well, we made it 91%, God just sort of meets us the rest of the way, right? When in reality, the best of us in this room, the best of us are a lot closer to 12% than we are to 91%, right? Because zero is closer to 12. Uh, but beloved, and know you are beloved when I say this, in our sin, the best of us aren't even close, right? He rescued us, not because we were most of the way there. God rescued us because he loves us and he is rich in mercy. His salvation, our salvation, rests entirely in his character. And what does this passage say is the conduit by, God, uh, by which God saves us? Uh, we talked about it already, but verse five, verse 5 says, it is by grace you have been saved. We've already talked a lot about grace, but I didn't define it. So for those of you... Um, who would like a definition. Short version is, is grace is an undeserved gift, right? Particularly when we deserve punishment. If I wrong you, but you show love to me, that's grace. I deserve a broken relationship, but you gave me love, right? Grace. So what is it, the grace, what is the grace that God shows us? What gift does he give us? He gave us his son, Jesus, who took on the death we deserved, the death we were living, and it was not the one he deserved. He was not dead in his sin. He was not following the ways of this world or the sun or or the devil. He was not deserving of wrath, but he took that on in our place that we might receive his righteousness and a restoration of our relationship with God as his children, right? I used to use uh, this phrase a lot when I worked in ministry. Uh, The phrase was, we brought nothing to the table. And while I think this is true to a degree, I, I sort of regret using it the way I used it, right? I think I like to think of it now as, as this. We already had what we were able to bring to the table. And what did we have was the Imago Day, right? Being made in the image of God. It still points to the power of God and only God at work in our salvation. But the idea that we bring nothing to uh, the table can be interpreted in sort of a dehumanizing and sort of like bad way, right? Um, and is very much related to what we talked about in terms of where your worth comes from. Um, now, if you'll humor me for a second, one of my favorite bands is Manchester Orchestra. Uh, and just for clarity, they are not an orchestra. 
I know they're a bit niche, but if you meet anyone between 32 and 35, or 32 and 32 and a half, uh, they probably listen to them. Um, so they have this whole album titled Everything to Nothing, right? And so what, what it makes you think of is that sort of Ozymandias, like it's someone who has everything uh, and falls to nothing. But that's not what they're talking about. Um, Andy, the lead singer, reveals the meaning in a song called My Friend Marcus, which he wrote to his friend Marcus. Uh, and in singing to his friend, Andy says, you mean everything to nothing. You mean everything to nobody but me. See, he's telling his friend that he means the world to him, right? You see the like parallel language, the nothing and nobody but me. The nothing there is Andy, is the singer, right? So he's saying like, you mean the world to me, but I am nothing. So what does that even mean, right? This is what Andy's wrestling with. And the whole album is a search for sort of like self-worth and how that impacts him in relationship with people and with God. So when I say we bring nothing to the table in our salvation outside what we already had, do not hear that you are nothing. No, what you already had is the image of Christ, which is absurdly priceless, right? It's an incredible honor. So then if this is true of us, those who follow Jesus, what, if, what is true of us as a result of his grace? We'll go through these quickly. We are alive with Christ. We were not able to make ourselves alive from death, but God can and he has. And that life that we now experience is with Christ. God is a relational God, right? And so he brings us back into relationship and communion with him. What a beautiful picture. We wronged God. We spit in his face. We turned our backs on him. And yet, but God loved us and made way for relationship still. I am not worthy, but God has made me worthy, right? I was dead, but I am alive. I was lost, but I am found. Next one, we are saved. Pretty straightforward. We are raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms. Now, it's a little confusing here because once we start following Jesus, we clearly don't ascend straight up, right? Unless again, you don't care about grades. Um, What he's saying though, is that our spot in eternity with him is secure. We have our seat. And in ways, as a result of having our seat, as a result of that security, we can participate in the harder things on this side of eternity, like loving people, caring for justice, caring for those that society deems are on the margins, or society says we don't care about them. We can do those things. We can step into that because our abundant life uh, on the other side of eternity is secure. Sorry, I stumbled over that, so let me say that again. We can care about these hard things because our abundant life on the other side of eternity is secure, right? We have been seated with him. Next one, we are shown the kindness of God. We get to know God. That is a wild thing. You think about that? Like, we get to know God. We get to see his character. What a beautiful thing. Okay, so we have seen what the, what the passage says, what was true of us before Christ and what is true of us after. And so then it leads us to like, what does that lead us to in our lives? And this is how we're gonna end, right? Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are his handiwork, his workmanship. When you pull that word out, uh, handiwork, maybe some of you know this, but it's the Greek word here uh, is poyama. It's pretty straightforward. What it means is what is made, workmanship, creation, right? But does anyone know what word in the English we get from poyama? Anybody? It's okay. It's poem. Yeah, it's poem. You were right. Um, I love this picture. God has sat and crafted us uh, as a beautiful creation. He labored, making sure every word was perfectly placed so that his workmanship, right? His poyama, us, we are in full display. 
I can't think of a more beautiful picture than God, the creator, the creator of heavens and earth, of every animal, of every star, the placement of every atom. He has gone great lengths for me to be his handiwork, right? Isn't that a beautiful picture? This scandalous grace that God might love that which has been deemed unlovable, this grace leads us to being crafted into his poyama for what? for good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do, right? I can't help but think of the words of Mordecai when he was coming to Esther uh, in a time where she had the chance to save the entire Jewish nation, right? What does Mordecai tell her? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your families, or father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this, right? And in so many ways, we have been placed in a royal position of being the sons and daughters of God, right? And in this truth in this, is the countercultural reality of the impact of the gospel, of the good news. It is not by our good works that we are saved. The ways of this world may define us by what we do, but God does not, right? We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved so that we might participate in the good works, and seeing others experience the abundant life that we have experienced in our redeeming. Uh, In her opening sermon on the series, Melissa talked about loving newness and how in this season, she was praying for newness and flourishing here uh, and across all of Chicago, right? And I loved that picture and that prayer. But that flourishing does not happen when we're in charge of our righteousness, when we're the ones that decide if we're righteous or not, right? Why? Because we cannot be a part of the renewal that God is participating in when we are so worried about our own standing before him, right? When that is our focus. What a counterintuitive thing, but the gospel is counterintuitive, right? Seems like the less you think about yourself and your holiness, the more you grow in holiness because you have been freed up to consider those around you and the ways that God is moving. Grace frees us from the shame that can so often paralyze us from doing anything out of fear, that we will do it wrong, right? Let me say that again. Grace frees us from the shame that can so often paralyze us from doing anything out of fear that we will do it wrong. But it also brings us into the presence of God where we experience true goodness. So in this both freeing us from shame and bringing us to God, our handiwork, our workmanship, our poyama identity is allowed to drive our good works. This is why only true freedom is from Christ, right? We are no longer in bondage to the success culture around us. Our meaning, our worth is found in the God who loved us even when we were dead. So to wrap up, um, I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 over us one more time, and then I'll pray. Um, As I do, consider God's free grace and what it means for us this morning. Starting verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world uh, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's poyama, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, what God prepared in advance for us to do. Let me pray. Lord, uh, I am just so blown away by who you are. Uh, I feel like one of the first things I learned when I became a Christian uh, was of your grace. And Lord, let me, let me never think that that was the last time that I needed to learn it, Lord. Uh, yeah, I, I just, I am so thankful uh, that while we were dead in our transgressions and sins, uh, you moved. You heard the cries of your people. You sent your son. And so Lord, let us rest in that this morning. Let us understand uh, that our identity is not defined by who or what we do um, for others or how we, while we are performing our job or what we earn, all of these things, Lord. Uh, but let it rest in you. Uh, let it rest in Christ's righteousness. Here's the name I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.